0: Uh, My name is Micah, where as Mario just uh, said, I'm 18. I just graduated high school. Um, And as I've just graduated, I'm finishing up my time here in the student ministries. It's been great. I've been attending Village Bible Church Sugar Grove for about four years, just under that. And um, it's been really great to grow deep with people and to develop uh, relationships here at the church. It's been—God has really blessed me through that. Uh, This morning, we're taking a break from our normal sermon series on spiritual warfare, because if you haven't gathered yet— It's Student Ministry Sunday. Um, That's why we're all up here singing and playing, and uh, that's why I get the honor of bringing God's Word to you today. So as a student uh, involved in the student ministries, I hope I'm not stating the obvious when I mention uh, something I've observed in the student ministries, and that's we as students struggle with sin a lot. Um, I, myself, as a student, am not immune to this disease. I'm not immune to this sickness, and I use the word disease because that's what sin is. Sin is a disease disease. It's, and it's a sickness. It's an infection with only one cure, and that's the transformation that comes through the gospel. Paul sums up the gospel in First Corinthians verses 3, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scripture. See, everyone who repents of their sins and puts their faith and trust in Jesus will receive eternal life. This is the gospel that can transform our lives. But if you're like me, the gospel is not always central in my life. I often get deviated from the path. I often get distracted from the abundant life that Jesus is coming, calling me to live. I get distracted by my sinful desire, by my selfish ambition. And I'm not living in a way that would be pleasing to God. I'm not living the abundant life that God has called me to live. And this morning, From our passage, I want to share with you three essentials you need to live a gospel-centered life. Three essentials you need to live a gospel-centered life. This morning, our text is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And as you're turning there, uh, which in your pew Bible is uh, page 995, let me share with you the background of 2 Timothy. Paul was a prisoner. Paul is the author of 2 Timothy. And as a prisoner in Rome, he wrote, his last epistle, 2 Timothy to Timothy. The date of writing as best as we can establish was approximately 66 or 67 A.D. A few few years earlier, before the writing of this, about 64 A.D., uh, Nero had ordered the torching and burning of his own capital city of Rome to escape uh, the atrocity that he had committed, to escape responsibility from this. He blamed this on the Christians and thus had countless Christians tortured and killed. Paul Paul finds himself in a Roman dungeon with little light to read read or write by. He has little sanitation, and he has no prospect of relief. Paul would soon find himself executed by Nero after the writing of 2 Timothy. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word, and then I'll ask God's blessing on our time. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of crops. Think think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But God's word is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come here and worship your name freely. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity that we have to hear your word proclaimed, and I pray that that's what would happen today, that your word would be preached through me, and that your words would come through and not mine. God, I pray that you'd be glorified through our service today, and I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we have three essentials we need to live a gospel-centered life. Our first essential as we find in verse uh, 1 and 2, is to devote yourself to gospel-centered disciple-making. We need to devote ourselves to gospel-centered disciple-making. We see in verses 1 and 2, it is impossible for us to live a gospel-centered life in our own power, in our own strength. That's why Paul says to Timothy in verse 1, be strong, be strengthened. The original Greek word for this is enduname, which means strengthened to strengthen or to put in uh, strength into something. It means to empower in the same way that electricity empowers our light bulbs or that gas empowers our car. So we're to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here that the grace is the catalyst for the action he's about to give to Timothy. See, this isn't something Timothy has done. This isn't a status Timothy has achieved. This is something that has been done to Timothy. Timothy. When Paul urges to be, uh, Timothy to be strong in light of the grace, he, he's using a passive imperative verb form. The passive voice refers to something that has been done to us and not done by us. Author Jerry Bridges puts it this way, Paul's, word be stre- Paul's words, be strengthened, indicate something is to be done to Timothy. He's to be strengthened by something outside of himself. That something is the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This concept is very important that we understand. The word endonema is the same word Paul uses in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Endonema being the active word in that sentence, meaning continually strengthens. So what, what is empowering Timothy? We see in verse 1, Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What is this grace? As we go deep into the gospel, we experience God's grace. We see that this grace isn't something earned by us. that we, It's not something we can earn, we can work for. This is something that is given to us by Christ's work on the cross. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Christ has grace without measure in himself, but he has not retained it for himself. As the reservoir empties itself into the pipes, so hath Christ emptied out his grace for his people. Of his faithfulness we have all received, in grace for grace. He seems only to have in order to dispense to us. He stands like the fountain, always flowing, but only running in order to supply the empty pitchers and thirsty lips, which draw nigh unto it. Like a tree, he bears sweet fruit, not to hang on bows, but to be gathered by those who need. Grace, whether it's work to pardon, to cleanse, to preserve, to strengthen, to enlighten, to quicken, or to restore, is ever to be had from him freely, without price, Nor is there one form of the work of grace which he has not bestowed upon his people. You see, at the moment of salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, we are empowered. We're free to draw upon this power because we can draw on it boldly as if it is ours. Because through Christ, it is ours. A great example of this happens to be superheroes. Now, as a high schooler, I would be embarrassed if I didn't bring up superheroes at some point because I love superheroes and superheroes are the best. So, many superheroes we see have similar backstories. Um, Oftentimes, it's a normal, everyday person going about their own life. When all of a sudden, an event that we would consider to be tragic as normal people, we see this event, we're like, that's tragic. Happens to this person, but this event gives this person an ability, a will, or a power to fight evil and injustice. For Matthew Murdoch, he had acid spilled into his eyes in an accident as a child. And as a result of this accident, he was left blinded. And the acid, while robbing him of his sense of sight, heightened all of his other senses. So it gave him a super sight. It enabled him to perceive the world around him in a better way than he had before. So this is a re- the result of this is he can fight in a superb way, and he can defend his city of New York. And through that, he becomes daredevil. Peter Parker was bitten by a spider. And that's not, that's not as tragic as losing your sight, I understand. But track with me for a minute. Um, Peter Parker is bitten by a spider, a radioactive spider, and he's given spider-like powers. He's also given heightened senses and uh, reflexes. So he's pretty much indestructible. Peter, has ha- he has to become someone as a result of this transformation. Thus we get Spider-Man. Once bitten, Spider-Man undergoes a transformation. He has to become Spider-Man. Peter Parker must transform into Spider-Man. He must fulfill himself into Spider-Man. One thing about Spider-Man is he, he doesn't desire to be a superhero. He doesn't desire to be the savior of New York City. He's just a meek, nerdy kid. This is a similar transformation that we have to go through and that Timothy underwent and we as believers undergo the moment we're made spiritually alive in Christ. So what what are we empowered to do? Verse one is pretty clear, I mean verse two, excuse me, is pretty clear that we are to make disciples. And verse two, and links naturally with Timothy's being empowered in grace, enabling him to transmit the precious deposit of things heard, which in this context refers to the gospel. We cannot pass on something we don't possess. Timothy was to pass on the truth which Paul had poured into him. The truth in the gospel that he, Paul had instilled in him. In verse 2, Paul refers back uh, to a sound teaching that Timothy would have heard over his years of discipleship from Paul. So Paul says to entrust the teaching of Scripture to reliable men who will be qualified. We look at, we'll look at the qualifications a little bit later, but they must be qualified to teach others. Here we see four generations of discipleship. Paul is the first generation. And he is to pour in, he's pouring into Timothy. And he has been pouring into Timothy. Timothy is the second genera- generation. And he is to pour into qualified men, who is the third generation. And then that generation is to pour into others, we see in the verse. And that's the fourth generation. See, I prefer, per, prefer the term disciple-making uh, over discipleship. Because disciple-making is the process by which we make disciples who make disciples. It creates a pattern. Not only is it one-dimensional between you and your mentor or you and your disciple, it's a generational thing. As we see here, Paul is pouring into Timothy so that Timothy can pour into qualified men. And those qualified men can pour into others. Disciple-making is not just one-dimensional. It creates a pattern. Paul is giving Timothy a similar command as the one Jesus gives the disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. What we know is the Great Commission Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. This is something we've emphasized a lot in our student ministry. Um, Over my time here, and over the last couple years specifically, I've been meeting in a one-on-one disciple-making relationship with Mario. Through this time, Mario and I, uh, Mario's been able to pour truth into me. And in our weekly meetings, we focus on three specific things. We focus on sharing of our lives. We focus on talking about what's happening in our life. We focus on studying God's Word. And we focus on seeking the Lord through prayer. Earlier this year, I started meeting with a younger high school student and pouring that same truth of the gospel that Mario has poured into me, I've now been able to pour that into a younger high school student. And he has been able to take that same truth that is in the gospel and pour it into a middle school student. So, are you devoted to making disciples? Who is God calling you to disciple? If you're not sure where to look, there's a great opportunity and there's a great need for disciple makers in our student ministry today. And Mario or Jeremy would be happy to talk to you about how you can get plugged into that. Maybe you don't feel qualified to make disciples yet, to disciple someone, because you yourself need discipling. So start the disciple-making process in your life by seeking someone out to disciple you, and then go find someone to to disciple. To develop a gospel-centered life, we need to devote ourselves to gospel-centered disciple-making. But we also need our second essential. We need to develop a gospel-centered lifestyle. In verses 3 to 6, Paul gives us three different pictures. He gives us three different characteristics of a qualified man. We must possess these characteristics if we've been made strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. As we talked about just a minute ago, if Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive Spider-Man, he must possess certain spider-like powers. And in the same way, if we have been made strong in the grace that is in Jesus, we must possess these character traits. The first character trait is that of a soldier. We see it in verse 4. Paul wants Timothy to have no misunderstanding of the spiritual warfare that's going on around him. Today, we see spiritual warfare alive and well. Our world is becoming increasingly more hostile towards people who proclaim the name of Jesus. Not only, though, is Paul warning Timothy, he's also commanding Timothy to endure Hardship that is coming as a good soldier of Christ. Thomas Constable describes a soldier in the following way. As an ordinary soldier must be single-minded in his purpose, rigorous in his self-discipline, and unquestioning in his obedience. So must every soldier of Christ. See, the job description of a soldier isn't that of a 9-to-5 job or even one of an extra-long work week. Everything that the soldier is must be 100% devoted to the cause which he or she is fighting for. And in that same way, we as soldiers of Christ must be devoted 100% to Christ 24-7. Well, Timothy is to be living in the world, he's not to become entangled with the things of this world. Timothy is not supposed to allow the affairs of this world to interfere with his duty, the fulfillment of his duty to his Lord. So our focus as Christians must be to please our commanding officer, we accomplish this by surrendering our will to God and to asking, and asking him to uh, fill us with his Holy Spirit. In verse 5, we see a picture of an athlete. In the Greek games, which would have still been being held during Paul's day, if one wanted to compete in these games, there was three qualifications they had to meet. They had to be a true-born Greek. They had to prepare for at least 10 months. And then they had to swear before Zeus that they had done so. And thirdly, they have to compete within a specific rule set for any given event. If an athlete failed to meet any of these qualifications, he was automatically disqualified from the games and would not be allowed to compete. There are comparable parallels to us as Christians. First, we must truly be born again. Second, we must be faithful in study and obedience of God's word and in self-denial and in prayer. And thirdly, we must live according to Christ's divine standards of disciple-making and discipleship. As Christians, we've met the first standard naturally, because that's what it means to be a Christian. We, as a Christian, we are born again. When you're born again, you've bowed your knee in repentance to Jesus. You've confessed your sins, and you've placed your trust in Jesus alone for the uh, justification of your sins and for, the san- for your sanctification. The other two requirements, however, are far from natural. They require constant dedication and work. See, we train like athletes not to keep our salvation, because our salvation has already been secured in Christ, but we train and compete to bring glory to Christ in response to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. A good spiritual athlete works hard at this goal, with one, or at this, with one goal in mind, and that's the victor's crown. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, Paul says everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And in verse 6, our third example is that of a farmer, a hard-working farmer. I think one of the characteristics that New Testament farmers and farmers of today share, while the technology may be different, they're still hard working. That's one of the first words that comes to mind when I hear that somebody is a farmer. They're most likely hard working. That's the nature of the job. Hard working in the original language means to toil intensely, to sweat and strain, even to the point of exhaustion if necessary. Farmers often worked alone. They definitely didn't have the benefit of soldiers, fellow soldiers, to stand by them. They didn't have the benefit of teammates, and they didn't, surely did not have the benefit of a crowd cheering them on to victory. I think this example should hit, close this home to us as believers because this can kind of mirror our uh, lifestyle, out, our life outside of church, outside of Sunday service. See, our daily routine may be unattractive and it may be unrewarding, but no matter what our daily responsibilities require of us, we are told that if we are faithful God promises us his reward and his blessing. So let me be clear again. Good works have nothing to do with earning our salvation, nor can our salvation in itself be earned. But our good works have everything to do with working out our salvation. Our good works are a result of our salvation. Um, If you would turn with me really quickly, keep your finger in 2 Timothy, turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, that is page... 976 in your pew Bible. We're going to read verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are... I'm going to stop there for a second. In verses 8 and 9, we see our salvation. We see how we are saved, and we read about how we are saved. It's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God. But if we continue on to verse 10... We see we are his workmanship created in Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see that our good works are what we are created to do. We are created to glorify our Father through our good works. They have nothing to do with our salvation in the sense of earning our salvation. Our salvation can't be earned. But we show our salvation through our works. You see, farmers, farmers, they plant crop, they cultivate it, And they harvest it. And if they harvest crop without fruit, what good is that fruit? It's useless, right? If you have corn that has no corn on the cob, then it's useless. You wouldn't bring that into your house and prepare it for dinner. That's common sense, right? So as believers, our lives must bear fruit as well. Scripture outlines three general kinds of spiritual fruit. The first being spiritual attitudes that characterize a spirit-led believer. Second is Righteous Actions, and the third is New Converts. So Mario once shared with me uh, a story of a student named Josh in one of his past student ministries. Josh, uh, as a freshman, made the varsity basketball team in his public high school. As a freshman, he had uh, Michigan State University's basketball coach r- send him a letter letting him know that he was interested in signing him. As a freshman, he was talented. During the basketball season, though, his coach decided to instill a Sunday practice which would interfere with Josh's time of worship. So Josh decided to respectfully go to his coach and inform his coach he would not be able to attend the Sunday practice because his priority lied with Christ. Josh understood that there would be consequences to this decision. He may even end up having to sit out games or not start games. Josh's coach understood his decision, and respected it, but still gave Josh the consequence of not starting Tuesday games. By the time Josh was a senior, he was valedictorian in his class, and in his graduation speech, he shared the gospel with a thousand graduates, faculty, family, and friends. And after college, he went on to serve the Lord in full-time ministry as a student ministry pastor. So Paul says in verse seven, we're to reflect on what he has said. We're to think about it. We're to consider it. Paul Reflect doesn't mean to take a mere glance at it. It does not mean, by any means, to sit in your pew and simply take note of it. You are to think about it, meditate on it, consider it. I'll give you an example of someone who has failed in this. That's myself. In my prep for this sermon earlier in the week, I read no commentary. I did not study for the passage. I simply read what what was in the passage and came up with my own thoughts on it. And by Wednesday, Mario had to sit me down and be straight with me in love and say, Micah, you can't preach this sermon. It's awful. You don't understand what you're preaching on. It's okay. You can laugh. It was awful. It truly was. Mario was to the point of even pulling me out of preaching today because I, I didn't study. I didn't do my homework. He asked me, are you willing to put in the work to understand this passage if you, want, if you actually want to preach on Sunday, you have to put in the work. And I said yes. And consequently, I ended up staying late every night between uh, Wednesday night and today, working on my message. I, it, it, it involved working on it all day Thursday, not sleeping Thursday night. I slept a little bit, but not a ton. It involved getting up early Friday morning. It meant getting up early Saturday morning so I could come here and practice it. Today, I had to get up at 5.30 and I got here at 6.00. Uh, so I could practice my message with Mario. I had to put a lot of work into being ready for this. And Paul says we're to put a lot of work into understanding scripture. And the Lord will give us insight into all of this. So, are you like a good soldier enduring hardship? Or are you entangled in the affairs of this world? Are you like the athlete? Are you living according to God's word? Do you work hard like the farmer are you lazy in your pursuit of Christ? In order to live a gospel-centered life, we must devote ourselves to gospel-centered disciple-making. We need to develop a gospel-centered lifestyle. But we also need our third essential, which is to demonstrate a gospel-centered passion. We need to demonstrate a gospel-centered passion. Paul says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. Remember is in the present tense, which means we are to do it now. But as a command, it doesn't only mean we do it now, we are to continue doing it. We are to continue to remember and think about the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. Paul mentions that Jesus has descended from David, and this reminds us of two things. First, not only is Jesus 100% God, he's also 100% man. And we see this in that Jesus descended from David. Second, it also shows us that the God of promises keeps his promises. God fulfilled his promise to David in that, and Israel as well, in that the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, came from the lineage of David and from the tribe of Judah. And he would establish a kingdom that would last forever. For Paul, reflecting on God's promise, meant uh, for Paul, reflecting on God's promise kept to David in the risen Christ, reminds him that God will keep his promises to him as he suffers in a prison for the advancement of the gospel. Not only will this promise come true in the depths of Paul's own life, but it will also come true for the sake of the elect, as verse 10 talks about. See, the gospel is Paul's passion. What is your passion? I think of Jim Elliot when I read through this passage. Jim Elliot, if you don't know, was a missionary to Ecuador. He was trying to bring the gospel to unreached people groups in the jungle, and specifically one people group called the Iranic people. This people group was known to be extremely violent towards outsiders, towards foreigners, and even to other people groups who were in the same jungle as them, but did not, were not from the same tribe. But this fact did not stop Jim Elliot one bit. He and his crew were on a mission to bring the gospel to them. In the movie adaptation of his biography, The End of the Spear, Jim Elliot's son asks his dad, What if they attack you? Will you fight back? Elliot replies calmly, I can't kill them. I have Jesus, and they don't. Jim Elliot and his crew eventually made first contact with the Iranian people, and they were killed by the very people that they were trying to bring the gospel to. See, being from America, they undoubtedly had access to better weapons the Primitive Spears and knives, Because the Iranian people are an unreached people group. But Elliot and his men are from modern day America. Modern day in the time. Their attitudes could could have easily been. We'll witness to them as long as they don't attack us. Maybe a better way to put it that will hit closer home for us is. I'll witness to them if they'll be nice to me. If they'll react in the way which I want them to. If, they, if I will get a um, desirable response. But this wasn't. Jim Elliot's attitude and his men. They knew that they had a mission given from Jesus to tell these people about Jesus. And they gave their lives for that purpose, that the men who killed them might have the same life that they received upon salvation. After Jim's death, Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, their daughter, and another one of the missionary sisters, Rachel, moved in with the whole tribe and started to work with them the love of Jesus Christ was shown through their forgiveness. And through that, they have the opportunity to share the gospel with the entire tribe and bring many of them to a saving relationship with Jesus. You see, Jim Elliot did not know how God was going to use him. He didn't know if he was going to bring the gospel to the Iranian people directly or if he was just a part of God's bigger plan to bring the gospel to the Iranian people. But Jim Elliot knew this. I have to tell the world about Jesus I'm starting with the ironic people. And he gave his life for that purpose because of his gospel-centered passion. See, if we have a gospel-centered passion, your gospel-centered passion will be challenged both internally and externally. Internally, we must die to our selfish desires daily, and we must live out the gospel both in our actions of Christ-transformed character, but also in words proclaiming Christ. And externally, especially in light of the recent Supreme Court rulings. The day is coming where your passion for the gospel will be tested, just as it was for Paul and for Jim Elliott. So my question to you today is, what is your passion in life? Is the gospel of Jesus your passion, or is it your own desires and pursuits? If your passion is not Jesus Christ and his life-changing gospel, ask the Lord to help you make that your passion in life. You see, to live a gospel-centered life, we need these three essentials. We need to devote ourselves to gospel-centered disciple-making. We need to develop a gospel-centered lifestyle. But we also need to demonstrate a gospel-centered passion.